This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navarre, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. Facing right yeah. now is that there seem to be no ex- con- widely accepted authorities of facts, yes. and yes. So, so all facts become in dispute. Yes, and then it's very hard to have real meaningful discussions. Yeah, they just break down to name calling. Right. In this episode of Outspoken, we'll hear from Craig Ihara, professor emeritus of philosophy at Cal State Fullerton, about the story of his family as Japanese Americans during World War II and after. And then we'll hear from Natalie Navarre in our Out of the Archives segment. She'll provide excerpts from the Japanese American Oral History Project. Very pleased to have a special guest here on Outspoken. He's a longtime member of the Cal State University Fullerton faculty, Craig Ihara, emeritus professor of philosophy who's been at Cal State Fullerton since 1972. Prehistory to people here. <laughs> you are history. You've, you've <laughs> lived history here at this institution. Um, it's great to have you today. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Today we're talking about the Japanese-American experience, especially in a time of crisis during World War II, mm-hmm. but um, certainly there have been times after that we can talk about as well. And in particular... Craig, I wonder if we could talk about your family experience. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that the center has been involved in for many years is an ongoing oral history project involving Japanese Americans right. and their experience. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I'm kind of in a unique position of having two oral histories done for myself. I, I had one done just briefly after I started at Cal State, and then one 30 years later. Wow. <laughs> so uh, could reflect both on changes in my life and Asian American life and the campus as a whole. So um, so uh, I feel very uh, privileged in that regard. And you're another 15 years down the road I here for this so. one. I think so. I think so. I can't remember exactly when that second one was done, but it was a while. I'm, I'm not even sure whether um, it included what I was doing with the Asian American Studies program because I helped to start that program in 1996. Um, we started a few years before getting a proposal t- together, and we uh, 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 were awarded a, a, a program status, and we could give a minor you know, by 1996. And then by 1999, we were uh, enabled to give a bachelor's degree, and I think we gave our first degrees in, in Asian American Studies in the year 2000. So time does fly now. It's been... 16 years since we could give a first year. Gee, it just dawned on me. It's really past our 20 years when we've had the program. We yeah. should have had a special commemoration of that. Yeah, well, we'll give a little one little one today. Okay. Thanks for mentioning it because that, that is one of the changes that occurred over the time you've been here, a mm-hmm. consciousness of the need for something like that and then implementing it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the growth of Asian population in general has been so enormous since 19, in 1985, uh, 65 with the with the change in the immigration laws and um, 
you know, prior to that, it was pretty much Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, uh, but no Vietnamese, few few Koreans, uh, so much. I never thought I would see a sushi restaurant in every corner uh, <laughs> or see so many Asian uh, faces. Uh, Orange County has changed dramatically, hasn't uh, amazingly, it? Amazingly, amazing. And, and Fullerton has changed enormously that way. We were very few Asians on campus when I first came here. Well, let's go back a little bit farther. Let's okay. go back to when you were born. You right. were not born in circumstances similar to the rest of the no, country. No, no, no. I, uh, I was. Uh, I tell people sometimes I was born in prison. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was during World War II, 1943. Uh, I and I think something like 10,000 other Japanese were born in the camps. And sometimes when you see a disparity between how many people, how many Japanese were in the camps, you'll get a disparity based on whether they were they were born prior to camp or whether they're born during camp. So the numbers go up about 10,000 mm -hmm. <laughs> during that period. Um, so uh, yes, my, uh, my life was certainly very much influenced by that, certainly part of my identity that I was born in the relocation camp in Rower, Arkansas which is southeast Arkansas near the Mississippi border, a uh, very flatland area, Lo swampy at that time. A lot of the Japanese worked, my father among them, worked to help transform that into uh, farmland. Mm -hmm. uh, Japanese Americans did that also in Arizona, I know, and other places, I'm sure. I think Idaho, too. Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, most Japanese had some experience uh, working in agriculture and so we're quite good at, at taking land and using it uh, efficiently and transforming it from non-arable to arable uh, property so um, no, they did a, a very good job that way so anyway I was uh, I was born there in camp my parents had been married just before the relocation uh, my mother in fact graduated from high school in December of 41. Where was that? She was, uh, she graduated from Roosevelt High School. She lived in Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. My dad was also from the Los Angeles uh, area. He graduated from, well, he went to Fremont High School. And, um, and my other uh, uh, grandparents were also in the, in the Los Angeles area and in the San Pedro area at that time. But my um, mother and father partly got married just so they could help ensure that they would go to the same camp. Otherwise, um, the odds of going to the same place were reduced. And so even though all of us Japanese Americans in the LA area congregated, were put into assembly uh, area at, uh, at Santa Anita Racetrack, right. um, people from Santa Anita were shipped off to different parts of the country. and. Uh, no one quite knew when or, or even where. When they got on got on that train, my mothers would say that, you know, the windows were blocked off. They couldn't see out very much. Uh, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how long they would be on the train. Um, so it was quite a frightening experience because, uh, as with anyone, it's the unknown that's the worst. I mean, when you when you're afraid that something terrible might happen, uh, you don't quite know what to expect. Uh, that causes a lot of uh, a lot of suffering. There's a painting I think by Henry Sujimoto, where a child is asking the mother, "When will we go home?" I think that's the title mm -hmm, of it. Mm -hmm. 
Not knowing yeah. is very hard. Yeah, and of course the parents try to shield their children as best they can, uh, but uh, when they're suffering a lot of anxiety themselves, it's very, very difficult. So, um, yeah, that generation, and of course for most Japanese Americans from the mainland, the, uh, who were in the mainland at the time, uh, one of the first things you inquire when you meet someone else of Japanese ancestry, you ask them, well, what camp was your family in? Mm -hmm. and that's the benchmark, so to speak. Um, and people will often come back with not just the camp, but the, the block, particular block within the camp. Right. Um, and then they'll start asking, oh, do you know this person or that person? And um, It's uh, one of the things that in some ways, you know, kind of brought the community uh, together. Major, obviously traumatic experience in most lives. Of course, Hawaiians were not incarcerated in mass. There were simply two men that would have had to more than half the population taken away if they had done that. But right. there were serious curfews and things of that sort in Hawaii. So, uh, yes, it was a very, it's a very um, troubling time, and uh, I hope we never go through anything quite that dramatic again. How old were you when you understood? where you had been born and under what circumstances. Yeah, you know, um, it's hard to remember exactly because um, my, my parents and grandparents always referred to it, the relocation as camp. Oh, in camp, so-and-so was so. And we think, well, camp, you know, that sounds nice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Wonder what camp that was. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's only kind of gradually that we realize that, that this camp was not someplace we had gone to voluntarily, uh, that it was something that happened because uh, we uh, weren't trusted as a group. Mm -hmm. And uh, for years I wondered, well, first, why my parents and other Japanese didn't protest more mm -hmm. to their being incarcerated, and also uh, why they didn't talk about it much. And uh, it came to me, this is my my explanation for part of it, It's I, I decided that that it was kind of like being raped. It's not your fault. Uh, but it's not something you want to, to talk about um, because basically people were in camp because they weren't trusted. We're saying you as a group are not worthy of a trust. You're not one of us. You're not an American. You can't be trusted, so we've got to lock you up because you're such a suspicious character. And that really, I think, especially coming from a Japanese culture, that um, humiliation, you know, the shame involved in being not trusted, not being thought of as being a loyal American, um, having to be actually put into a to, um, behind barbed wire. That was a humiliation and a shame that, you know, they really did not want to, to dwell uh, on. And that is one reason I think they didn't talk about it much. And I think the other reason is they wanted their children um, them to become fully Americanized themselves. They yes. didn't want them to be angry or to feel the alienation. They wanted them to look to the future, not to the past. Uh, and I think everything they did was to try to ensure that uh, the younger generation, the Sansei, could be successful. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I sometimes get pushback. People say, well, Japanese Americans didn't mind. If they had minded, they would have protested and they didn't say anything so they must have been okay with it and quite quite the opposite quite the opposite I think uh, and, and and one of again one of the important values in Japanese culture and something that I was sort of taught is this whole value called enyo 
Henryo is being able to hold back, not not to let your feelings show, not to um, to be able to endure, basically, yeah, endure in dignity, uh, and um, so it was very important the, the ability to uh, endure suffering uh, without uh, you know showing. Um, all your, all your exposing your feelings was really a, a important virtue in in Japanese culture. So, uh, yeah, you you wouldn't be able to judge easily, which uh, is simply by looking uh, how strongly some uh, Japanese American might feel all of this. There are photographs that Ansel Adams took, I think, at Manzanar, where people have smiles on their faces, and he was doing this for the government, and of course. Mm-hmm. They could point to see there are mm-hmm. smiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, you're not seeing everything there. You're That's seeing right. Just a moment. Yeah. There's a funny thing. I've, I mean, I know, and I don't know if this was quite what this explanation in the, in this in that anecdote you just gave. But in Japan, if your uh, parent dies and you have to go to a funeral, you go to your boss and you say, "I, I so apologize. I need to have a day off. My mother died," and you smile. Hmm. Because partly the idea is that you're not, you don't want to uh, impose um, a sad, your sadness on someone else. Right. And so, um, again, it's a matter of trying to uh, not uh, reveal all that you might be feeling uh, about something like that. And let's be clear, after the war, it's not as though disloyalty w- was an issue that went away. Uh, in the 50s, uh, that's right. that's <laughs> you know, right. there was a, a great concern about who was loyal and who that's wasn't. Right. And well, the, 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 the session we were t- the, we, just before we were talking about the, the programs over uh, at the Arboretum, the Cal State Arboretum, and uh, we're talking uh, next, this coming Sunday, about the Winterberg experience, people coming back from uh, camp. And, and last week, uh, uh, last Sunday, and talked about how certain communities, you know, just didn't want Japanese back into the community. Um, and in Oregon, uh, a place with a memorial for uh, soldiers who had died in World War II, including some Japanese Americans, and that the American Legion up there wanted their names taken off that list, hmm. which was, I'd never heard that story before. I thought it was really so appalling. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of hostility. My own family. Uh, did not come back to California immediately, partly because of that. They knew how much hostility there was back here. And so we traveled and lived in Cincinnati and Chicago briefly, and then Cleveland for about three years. Mm-hmm. So my earliest memories are really of that, that, that period of time. Moving around. We're moving around. I was seven when we came back to the Los Angeles area in 1949. And I, I grew up in Gardena, where a lot of Japanese were... You know, on the one hand, uh, I'm always glad I grew up in an area with a lot of significant Japanese population, but clearly the realtors were kind of funneling Japanese to certain areas mm-hmm. also. Um, steering, I think. Steering, it's called. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, um, but uh, we did have to wait, and there was certainly discrimination. My m- mother talks about how hard it was, even in, in, in uh, Chicago and Cleveland, to get uh, people to rent to us. You'd have to go from door to door to find someone who would rent a room uh, out. And um, yeah, so it was a very 
hard time. One of the things she would tell me is that you know, when I came out of camp, I was two years old, and I still, and my first language was, was Japanese. So we'd come out of camp, and as a toddler, basically, three or four years, I would be speaking Japanese in a loud, childish voice, and I'd be saying things to her in Japanese, like, Kaiditaiyo, I want to go home. Kaiditaiyo. And she would be worried that people would, would know this is Japanese, you know, yeah. and that their hostility might turn uh, turn on us. Yeah. And I, I don't know that it ever actually happened, but it didn't make her feel comfortable that I was there. Now, it's understandable that she would have that fear. How did you feel? Do you remember how you felt when you first understood what those circumstances had been? How, how did you deal with that? Well, I know in grammar school, uh, one of the things that... Uh, um, was 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 very hard to kind of reconcile was both the fact that uh, my dad was fighting in the the, uh, the Korean War, hmm. um, and I was in you know I was interested in tanks and airplanes and military airplanes and but at the same time you know sometimes somebody would call you a Jap. Uh, hmm. I remember one man on a, a bus was talking saying to me my friends something like well I killed a lot of your fathers so I mean it was like uh, this uh, cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. here because um, your feelings and some of your reinforcement was in in one direction but there was still enough of the remainder and of course you know, obviously things about John Wayne movies sure. World War II movies there was there was there was a lot of that so um you know, I guess it's the period where you start wondering about your identity mm -hmm. uh, and you're trying to figure out where your loyalty should be and how you should be feeling about uh, various things. Um, at least I think my parents were always, you know, my grandparents were always very clear that we were Americans, our loyalties should be uh, to America, that America was basically a good country and that, you know, we shouldn't be resentful and such. And so. Um, I think that was very helpful. If they had been uh, bitter, uh, if they'd transmitted that to us, I think it would have been much more difficult. Do you think they had one message for the kids and one message when they were themselves, or do you think they were pretty consistent about that? It's probably hard to tell when you're young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, my, my impression of my grandparents, and especially my grandparents, I guess, is... Um, in fact, my grandmother's favorite term was shikatakanai, which means... Well, it can't be helped, huh. and 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 uh, for a lot of things that were bad, she would say shikata ganai. There's nothing we could do, nothing we can do now, nothing we could have done about it then. You just kind of let it go, and uh, I think that was the attitude of a lot of the uh, the Japanese. They accepted it, and they just wanted to to move on and not dwell on it. You know, it's a it's a very Asian. Very Buddhist. Mm -hmm. My family wasn't Buddhist, actually, but it's a very cultural, culturally embedded notion that you don't want to cling to uh, hatreds and uh, jealousies and things of that sort. Um, so you, so obviously, you, you want to remember the the, the people you've lost and uh, um, honor their memory, but uh, you don't let that hold you back. I think. Now my my late wife's family uh, actually did have a, a family member who was killed in in Europe in the 442nd in Italy in Italy and um, 
certainly and that it, it always seems like it's the best one that gets killed mm. <laughs> the one who is the kindest and the the, the, the responsible one but um, yeah uh, just like people everywhere you you um, you cope you try to you do the best you can with what you've got and what you've got left um, so my probably my my family my father and my uncle were both a little bit too young to have been actively engaged they were both actually I think at boot camp by the end of World War uh, two mm-hmm. uh, and had they gone from the camps to boot camp or uh, they? yes that's right they both gone from the camps to the boot camp they'd been drafted out of the camp yeah. and um, and my father served two years came out had a hard time finding a job uh, actually went back into the military I guess back in 48 or 49 and was there as I said through the Korean War so he spent well, I think a good seven years in the military uh, before he before he left the army hmm. so um, it's interesting to me that the younger generations are the ones that by the time you were in college or graduate school or maybe starting yes. your career they're the ones who yes. began to ask some mm-hmm. pretty open questions right. about what had gone on what do right. you remember about that time yeah well i i was both uh, surprised and impressed that uh, the sansei the younger sansei especially uh, during the 60s uh, started to really look into this find out about it raise protests uh, about it i mean i think it's partly because of the time you know the 60s mm-hmm. were a time when people were concerned with civil liberties uh, and uh, protest marches and movements were in the air and um, so I think that's that's part of 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 that whole generation that wanted to uh, make things better so a lot of younger um, uh, uh, Sanseis were involved in that I, uh, I, I mentioned that Dale Minami, who was just a couple blocks down from a younger Sansei, he was involved uh, in uh, the, uh, famous uh, court cases about this. And so um, I was both uh, pleased, n- not optimistic, and then ultimately surprised hmm. when the, when, uh, the uh, preparations to Japanese Americans were actually made. It's a long process. That wasn't until it was what, a 1988 very long process. Or yeah, so? yeah, that's right. I never thought it would happen. Actually, <laughs> I guess I'm too pessimistic. But uh, uh, but they were eventually able to get the Congress and the President to acknowledge that this was uh, a wrong, um, um, a violation of our rights as American citizens, and that uh, um, there was an apology that came with twenty thousand dollars a person. And I think that the money uh, was important just because it shows that it was sincere. It wasn't just words, there was some action involved in this. And even though for some people it was too little too late, those who had passed on were not awarded any money. And for those who lost businesses and land and such, it was not enough. Right. Um, but um, as I say, it, it, uh, it was a meaningful Apology, and so I thought that was um, a very good thing, and it, it actually did make me very proud to be an American because there are very few countries that would actually uh, uh, make that kind of, of statement uh, faced with uh, uh, something um, something that they had done that was that was wrong, and 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 not done through 
I mean, the Germans have acknowledged what they have they have done, mm -hmm. but of course that's under the pressure of having lost the war. Of course. So uh, um, anyway, uh, that was a process that you know gave rise to a lot of things, including Asian American Studies programs sure. around, the, around the country. Ours, ours is really a relatively late one, partly because there were so few Asians here through the '60s and the '70s. It wasn't really until late '80s, '90s that we started seeing significant numbers. Of, um, of Asian students here on campus. And they were mostly Vietnamese, uh, Korean, Chinese. You know, I remember the late 80s and early 90s, though, and I remember that there was kind of a groundswell, a little bit of fear right around that time mm -hmm. about economic, there was kind of an economic nationalism oh, yes. going on, yes, a that's fear right. that's that Japan, Japan. That's right, Japan mm -hmm. was really hitting its peak in the late uh, 80s, and uh, uh, U.S. was worried about being displaced as leading economic power in the world. And yeah, there was uh, definitely some xenophobia going on there. We were worried about Japanese coming in and buying up a lot of property and s such. Um, yeah, that happens um, and, and um, uh, periodically. And uh, as Japan faded, all of those things went away. It's, Fear drives a lot of things, uh, a lot of it bad. Um, I remember, in fact, I think one of the times I most uh, realized what my parents were facing and why they did not protest uh, vociferously is because um, during the Iran um, uh, hostage situation, oh, yes. we at the time we had a lot, quite a lot of Iranian students. You know, many of them uh, were uh, were students that. Uh, whose families worked for, worked under the Shah. Or, and, um, and of course, when the Iranian Revolution came, those students who opposed to that, that revolution, um, any case, the students here were getting victimized by people who were unhappy about U.S. hostages being taken in Iran. And, you know, so irrational, because these students had nothing to do with it. Many of their families were against the the uh, the people in power in Iran, and yet you could see it's uh, it's a very frightening uh, thing when people just say, "Oh, you're Iranian, you know, you're you're responsible for for keeping our people prisoners. You know, we're gonna you know slash your tires and hurl insults and threaten violence. It's the kind of thing that's you know." happened again after 9-11. I was just about to go there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's this, uh, I don't know, it must be a rather rather deep instinct to, for, for, to become very tribal and be very much focused on us versus them and start uh, identifying people by their obvious differences. Uh, and. Uh, so anybody who looks different becomes a threat when you feel threatened, I think. And clearly that happened during 9-11. I really felt sorry, well, I felt sorry for all of the people, uh, Muslims who were getting uh, victimized, but especially for the Sikhs who are not Muslim, <laughs> but were taken to be Muslim because of their headdress and their beard. I mean, the, the ignorance involved in all of that just is so discouraging. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I know that, um, as Japanese Americans, uh, you know, we, sh we we do our best. I know the ACLU does their best, and I think 
a lot of it I'd like to do more in terms of helping groups that feel victimized just to let them know that that uh, you know just you hang in there and things will work out in the long run just but it's it's hard to hard to feel that way when the, when people are being very nasty to you well we've gone through another wave we're going through another wave yes. it seems as though since the election there are reports of um, hate crimes or something close to it yeah. or something related to it that yeah. have, that have emerged and how, how did you track this as it was right. going on last year right well you know the 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 terrible thing is that rather than uh, Obama being a sign of a you know of a post-racial America it's really brought out the racism inherent and latent and uh, Trump has simply fanned the fan the flames I guess of, of all sorts of prejudice and by legitimating it through his example uh, really made it all the more obvious and more intense I think and so uh, um, yeah I think a lot of people are, are fearful and uh, I think they've got some reason to be uh, be fearful because uh, once uh, prejudice becomes legitimated then people are more likely to act on it because people act out their prejudices in many ways for a long time but it, it obviously can become more and more overt uh, when when it's modeled by leaders of the country so um, that's one of the things that um, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a whole new ball game now mm -hmm. uh, um, the, the Trump era no one quite knows what it's going to look like um, we've got a lot of concerns about um, what direction his administration will go in, and um, he says so many things you know, that are contradictory, and um, so it, it's again creating a situation of such uncertainty, and fear feeds on uncertainty, and that's what a lot of, uh, of is going on, I think, right now. Um, uh, you hope for the best and you um, you know trust that we will muddle through but uh, uh, things could get bad he's the first um, president president-elect he will be president in a few short days as we mm -hmm. record this Friday, um, yeah. who actually called out particular groups uh, singled them out essentially mm -hmm. in, in several of his campaign statements mm -hmm. that must have been kind of a, a red flag for you yes certainly yeah and um, especially I can't remember his name now but one of his spokespeople or who had talked about using the incarceration of Japanese Americans as a precedent for creating a list a uh, list of Muslims living in the country a registry mm -hmm. and um, you know that that takes you to a place that you just didn't think we would ever be again you know what that, that it actually just start classifying people by ethnicity uh, for potential persecution or investigation or potentially incarceration or <laughs> eviction right. uh, so it's uh, yeah that's certainly was very disturbing to the Japanese uh, community and uh, uh, you hope that this one hopes that the, the, the US has strong enough constitution institutions to prevent that kind of thing from happening again. But another, one of the things that's really quite appalling 
in recent years is how various institutions that have in the past had a lot of dignity and respect uh, have been diminished uh, and politicized, um, including now the FBI and the CIA and, and, and the Supreme Court, which at one point I certainly thought of as kind of above politics and now is so deeply entrenched uh, in politics. And um, the news sources in as well, there's, there's no common source of facts that everyone can agree on. Uh, that this this is the baseline of what the situation is like. Um, so um, our institutions are there. You hope that they are strong enough, but I don't think they've ever been challenged to the same degree on so many so many fronts. Um, so it is a very uh, scary time. We've all fallen down uh, the rabbit hole, and we're in <laughs> Trump land now, and we don't know what's what's going to appear. In part because we can't get a real read on the leader, right? That's right. He says many contradictory things. Some things sound good, like aspects of Obamacare that he wants to keep in place, but then um, uh, the, the Congress has other ideas. Um, I think it's it's already happening, but there's just as has been a, a logjam. Uh, Republicans stopping anything Obama has wanted to do for the last six years. Um, uh, Trump is going to come up against uh, the Congress in a very direct way, and it's already happened with regard to Russia. It's going to uh, happen with regards to uh, health care, uh, the, the wall, perhaps. I mean, he the things that, that Trump wants to do that he's promised people he's going to do, uh, that his base wants him to do, are pretty expensive. And um, Congress, we know, has been reluctant to spend any money. Um, so um, I think it's inevitable that there's start going to be this conflict. And then there's, then we know that, that Trump's uh, response, whenever something bad happens, is to blame the other guy. So he's going to start blaming his Republican Congress for the things that are not going right and why he can't keep certain promises. And uh, so yeah, my, my uh, thought is that they're a greater danger to him than the Democrats at this point. Oh yes, and yeah. and you know, and of course, I was very surprised, and of course, very disappointed that Hillary didn't win. But I think, in retrospect, in um, it's good that the Republicans now own it. Um, they they have the power in Congress and the presidency, and so now what goes wrong. Is, is their fault. Well, basically. and we'll find out what they really believe. That's right. What's That's been right. what's right. been mere partisan rancor and what is actually That's right. Rough. And of course, the thing is that there, there are many different views. There's the Tea Party wing that doesn't want to spend any money on anything, wants government to go away. It's Trump, who is really not a fiscal conservative. Exactly. He's, uh, and there's other branches that are the, 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 the social conservatives that that are not really for small government. They want government to be very active in a lot of social areas. So, uh, you know, people were predicting the fragmentation of the Republican Party before the election. It may still come, but after the election. I think now that the Republicans have power, the factions are going to go at it. It's quite possible, yeah. And I think, now this is maybe my naive uh, liberalism going on, but, but in, in a way, you know, Trump won because he had uh, a lot of the working class white population. If he loses that group, mm -hmm. 
uh, then the Republican Party, I don't know if there'll be anything left uh, of it. So, um, you know, my favorite Chinese proverb, my favorite uh, uh, Taoist proverb is about the farmer. Mm-hmm. You know the story, right? He, his far his horse runs away, and the neighbors all say, "Oh, what a terrible thing! You don't have a horse to plow with." And the Taoist farmer says, "Oh, well, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no." And the next day, the horse comes back with a, a wild horse, and now he's got two horses. So the neighbors say, "Oh, isn't that wonderful? You've got two horses now, and isn't that great?" And the farmer says, "Well, maybe yes, maybe no." The next day, his son tries to break the the new horse, tame the new horse, and breaks his leg in the process. So the son's got a broken leg, and everybody says, isn't that awful? Your your son's broken his leg. He can't help you with the harvest. And the Taoist farmer says, well, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe it's awful, maybe it isn't. The next day, the army comes through, and they take all the able-bodied men, but they can't take the son. He's got a broken leg. So things that look terrible may not turn out to be as terrible as you think. We just don't don't know so it's not a time to dis- despair this things things change and the cycles of good and bad change so. and the answers we come up with usually are based on the past's problems <laughs> and right. so we can't really predict how that's they'll right. work that's right yeah. that's right the things uh, we, we, we we make a lot of judgments on the past and uh, we just can't be sure that the future will resemble the past I want to ask you what if people are concerned about uh, whether or not we have a virtuous leadership in the country, mm-hmm. whether civil liberties are mm-hmm. in danger or not. What are some things people should think about? What are things people should do if they're concerned about these things? In your view, well, um, you know, I do think the the most um, the, the most a dangerous thing right now in the country is uh, the, the division between right and left. The fact that we don't um, uh, identify with each other very well. Um, so I'm a, I'm a little concerned that people are going after Trump so hard at the moment that it's simply just going to exacerbate that division. In some ways, uh, I think that uh, Democrats, the people who did not want Trump to be president, would be better off if they just cooled it a little bit and give him a chance. Uh, The Republicans have the opportunity. They've said they wanted power. They said they could do things better. Let's see if they can do things better. Um, If they can't do things better, then perhaps we can get a general agreement that that's not the way to go. So. Um, so I understand people doing a lot of protesting now and expressing their unhappiness. Maybe there's some, you know, there's, you know, in any kind of negotiation, a, a good guy, bad guy uh, approach sometimes is is useful. Uh, but I do kind of think that we don't want to make the divisions um, even worse than they are. Um, so um, I'm certainly willing, and I I think the Democratic Party is willing to go along with anything that they can see as positive in the Trump agenda. Um, I mean, I I think what the Republicans did to Obama was really something that was should have been condemned much more strongly and much more broadly because 
the things that things that he wanted to do they wouldn't even consider for example everybody agrees that infrastructure in the country needs work donald trump agrees. trump wants uh, obama's been trying been trying to do that but of course he could never make any headway against the, the uh, republican congress and so a lot of uh, of what people in happiness is that there was gridlock in washington but the gridlock to me was really the republicans saying no to anything that obama proposed even if they were originally republican proposals and so to me what that said was they were putting the party ahead of the country because the country could have done much better if they had started to do things like infrastructure uh, had a bigger stimulus package had made changes in uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act that needed to be made, but it was all, what Obama was able to accomplish was completely in spite of Republican opposition. And I don't think the Democrats should go that way. I think the Democrats should uh, support uh, whatever comes out of the Trump administration that is positive, like, uh, like infrastructure building. So to cooperate where, uh, when they think it's for the good of the country and oppose when they think it's not. Uh, that's the way the democracy should work. And um, I hope that that's what, uh, what happens. One thing people can do is continue to build their knowledge of where we've been. And one of the ways to do that is go to an exhibition, which is right now at the Orange County Agriculture and Nikkei Heritage Museum at the Fullerton Arboretum, and you've been involved in mm -hmm. uh, assisting with this exhibition and some public events that are uh, mm -hmm. tied to the exhibit. What could you tell us some more about that? Well, uh, there are four uh, four weekends, four Sundays from one to three um, at the Nikkei uh, Heritage Museum on campus at the Fullerton Arboretum. Every, everyone's welcome. There's no admission or anything like that. So we're trying to educate people about some of the history that uh, of Japanese Americans that is very much relevant today, uh, because it really is uh, one uh, example of a group that's persecuted uh, unfairly just simply because they're different from the majority population. And the ways that the U.S. behaved in, uh, with regards to that population is, again, hopefully something we'll never repeat. Um, we honored a number of people uh, last Sunday who uh, uh, played important roles in uh, either trying to resist or who were, uh, as I said before, there's a kind of a good guy, bad guy part of all of this. Uh, majority of Japanese Americans uh, were very uh, obedient citizens. They actually went off and fought uh, for the Americans and did a tremendous job. There was a minority of, of Japanese who wanted to protest that, that wouldn't uh, go into the military because they thought this was unjust. Both sides were, were, were doing what they thought was right, and I think it was good that both sides did what they did because um, basically the one, my, the one group of resistors basically stood up for the rights of all Japanese Americans, and the others demonstrated the Japanese-American loyalty to the United States. So... Um, I guess I got onto this just because I think there's a, a way in which you really want to uh, see the past and all of its complexity. There are people who uh, resist, there are people who try to compromise, and uh, um, both can be positive in the long run, if you take the long run view. 
anyway, the the, the programs uh, this coming um, this coming uh, Sunday is a, a presentation about the preservation of the Winterberg uh, Church and the community around it here in Orange County. It was the, the Japanese American community here in Orange County, and its experiences both before, during, and after the war are very educational in terms of how a small group uh, is confronted with uh, uh, the negative attitudes of the larger population. Uh, so that's uh, that would be very good. And um, uh, I think, again, the Japanese American history is very important as um, uh, e examples of, of things that can happen again, even though we're trying to avoid doing them again. And the exhibit is up through February. Uh, right? You know, I'm not sure. The ex at least through mid-February. Mid February. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, the, the exhibit that's up right now is all about uh, Japanese soldiers, Japanese-American soldiers who came back from uh, World War II, about their exploits and about the way they were received when they came back, uh, often very negatively. And listeners can find out more about that at the Fullerton Arboretum website, get the hours, and the public events coming up. Craig Hara, I want to really thank you for joining us oh, It's today my pleasure, really. On Outspoken and reminding us of what's happened in the past and what to be vigilant about in our present and future. Thank you. You're welcome. And now let's listen to Natalie Navarre as she introduces excerpts from the Japanese American Oral History Project in Out of the Archives. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Center for Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast Cough has, Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories from one of our biggest oral history projects here at Cough, the Japanese American Oral History Project. A maritime professor and previous Cough director, Dr. Art Hansen, launched this project in 1972 by locating and interviewing Orange County community members who had been incarcerated in internment camps during World War II. Almost 300 oral histories later, Cough is working on the CSU Japanese American History Digitization Project an endeavor where 13 California state universities have joined together to digitize documents and oral histories, in the hopes that every CSU archive can digitize their materials and unite their collections onto one website. By the end of this digitization project, we will have digitized and transcribed 72 oral histories and digitized around 300 photographs, letters, maps, and other kinds of ephemera. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with someone you've already heard from, Dr. Craig Ihara. This interview was conducted by Betty Mitson on July 16, 1973. Listen as he discusses his grandfather and father's interaction with the FBI. They've told me a fair amount of the time previous to going to camp. My uh, uh, grandfather on my father's side was uh, uh, summarily taken away by the FBI, and that was one of the more traumatic um, occasions there before the war. And um, then their experiences in Santa Anita, mm -hmm. uh, talk of that very often. I'd like to talk more, a little more about your grandfather. Uh, where was he sent to? I'm not sure of the exact location. It was uh, uh, someplace here in California. Uh, it was a, a, a more of a detention camp rather that's than right. a relocation camp? That's right. Uh, it was part of that... Uh, initial roundup of prominent Japanese Americans mm -hmm. uh, and they took mostly the uh, 
uh, male heads of the household, you know, of you know, prime thirty to forty mm -hmm. age group. He was uh, an immigrant himself, then from Japan. That's right. Uh, do you know if um, if there was a specific reason why, other than the fact that he was an immigrant, that he was uh, singled out to be taken away? Um, the only other reason I believe is that uh, he was fairly prominent in the Japanese American community. He was part owner in uh, one of the larger produce markets here, and uh, uh, so worked as served as accountant for this business. And uh, I guess he was one of the wealthier mm -hmm. uh, Issei people. He was considered a leader then, uh, presumably, uh, or, or a potential leader. Perhaps. That's right. I'm not sure that he was all that active in uh, the Japanese-American community, but uh, he had a certain amount of prestige mm -hmm. there, and so I guess potentially. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Clarence Ainejizu, a longtime Japanese-American community leader in Orange County. This oral history was conducted by Richard Curtis on January 1st, 1966. When he was asked about his father's past, this was his answer. Uh, my father was interned right after uh, December 7th while he was, uh, he was uh, pulled in by FBI and they put him in, they, he went to, I think, uh, Bismarck in North Dakota. And from there, I think he went to, to Oklahoma, I think. Livingston, Fort Livingston or someplace in Oklahoma or I don't know, Mississippi, someplace around there. And then from there I think he went to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then from Santa Fe, New Mexico he was released and he came to Heart Mountain Relocation Center to be to join the family. I see. Why did they check him out? Why did the FBI uh, I assumed that uh, just all Japanese Americans had to go Regardless, did they check him out before they brought him into the camp? This normal procedure? Yeah, they, uh, you mean check him out before they went into the relocation yes. center? Yes. Oh, yeah, well, he had to ask, uh, answer a lot of questions. They had interviewed with these internees in these uh, centers, or, yeah, in these centers. And then, uh, pending the outcome of the interview, I think they were released. How long were you, uh, was there any time limit that you were given to prepare for a transfer? Or was this sort of a 24 hour? Situation? It wasn't 24 hours, I think they gave us a time limit of, 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 I don't know, maybe a month or so. We didn't, tell, at the beginning, while the, it was rumored, there were rumors just the first generation were to leave, but beginning, but later on, why? It was found that even the second generation uh, had to leave. The next narrator I will highlight is Sue Embry. She was an activist, educator, and longtime chair of the Manzanar Committee and helped to create the annual Manzanar Pilgrimage. This interview was conducted by Dr. Art Hansen on August 24, 1973. Listen to Dr. Hansen and Embry talk about her store and how the community felt as Japanese Americans were being evacuated. Well, when you were running the store, you were running it just at the time then of the evacuation. Did the mm -hmm. store uh, act as something of a uh, clearinghouse uh, as far as you were concerned for information about the evacuation? Did you have a lot of people coming in from the community where you could 
get well, a sense of the pulse of the community, so to speak? Yeah, I guess we did. Um, I'm trying to think who was around. All, all the, the school teachers were gone. They had been arrested. There were a couple of fathers around the neighborhood who also had been arrested. And, uh, but most of the families around, uh, the fathers were not that active, you know, in community affairs, so they were still around. I guess toward the end we started giving credit because they just didn't have any money and uh, we ended up never collecting for that. But uh, I remember that when they started to post the notices up, they did come in and ask, ask us to get information out to the community. Yeah, we had posters all around the area. And, uh, I guess they wanted to know what we had found out about different things. And, uh, we all sort of tried to, to get the information out to everybody. There was no, I guess, no real organized kind of thing, but I guess it sort of became a, a place where people came to ask for things. The fourth snippet comes from an oral history with George Fuji. He was the writer who used the name Voice of Nisei while in Poston's incarceration camp. This oral history was conducted by Ronald Larson on August 31st, 1976. When asked about the interim period of his life, where he wasn't sure about school, between the time of his relocation orders and the bombing of Pearl Harbor, this was his answer. I was involved in so many different families, and Long Beach area and so on, and uh, I actually witnessed that the families lost their fathers, see, and uh, financially they're pretty bad. Uh, so I said, well, Sooner or later, my father would be turned in, you see. Yeah. And then, of course, we experienced, uh, we witnessed the uh, uh, evacuation of uh, Terminal Island in 48 hours. So I expected that. I said, oh my God, some of these days are going to be the same thing. And then uh, they uh, divide the California into three categories, a group, A zone, B zone, C zone, and so on. I said, and then, uh, we happened to be in A zone, I think it was A to B. So uh, I had to think about my family, what's going to happen to my family? So I, middle of the school, I came back home. And uh, so, and uh, I said to myself, in other words, I prepared for the worst. In case anything happens, well, we'll just go to Fresno or someplace. So I went to Fresno, I made all arrangements, just in case anything happens, well, we'll, we'll come. Uh, establish ourselves in Fresno. So in the meantime, I didn't go back. I didn't go back to school. And for the last clip, I will highlight Lily McCabe's oral history. McCabe was an incarcerate at the Santa Anita Temporary Assembly Center and Granada Oromachi Incarceration Camp. This interview was conducted by her grandson, Jeff Yamada, on October 19, 1987. Listen as she talks about the time she was relocated to the Amachi Incarceration Camp in Colorado. And, uh the war broke out, and uh, importing business was nothing. We lost everything, and we moved uh, to Santa Anita, Santa Anita horse race track, right, right. and then we lived in a little barrack with uh, tar paper. We took our two little children, and uh, we were moved. Uh, in a few months, we were moved to uh, Colorado in a place called Amachi, mm -hmm. and uh, the welcome truck came. It's like a 
uh, sheep truck. Mm -hmm. And they load us all on, the baggage and the people standing in there, mm -hmm. and we went to camp. Well, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. There was just a bare barrack with no <coughs> bed, nothing. So uh, there was a pile of straw and a canvas bag, mm -hmm. and they told us, now everybody make your own mattress. Mm -hmm. So we just scrambled and made the mattress with the straw. And uh, some of the people that were uh, handy had the lumber lying around, they made a little bed. Mm -hmm. But we weren't able to do that, so we slept on the floor with the straw. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, in a few days, the army truck came with the army cot mm -hmm. and uh, uh, gave us the army blanket and an army quilt and a pea jacket for everybody, mm -hmm. uh, so it would keep us warm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had a, there was nothing, it was dusty, and the only thing we had in the middle of the place was a great big potbelly stove. Mm -hmm. And the coal came from, uh, coal truck someplace, came in from outside. They mm -hmm. dumped it in the, the side of the building, and we all had to scramble and get that coal before everybody gets it or mm -hmm. we'll freeze. I hope you all enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my co-workers will help you. Along with the Japanese American Oral History Project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contains almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. Thank you for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. This is Benjamin Cothra. Our episodes are produced and edited by Carrie Rael. You may find all Outspoken episodes on our website, coph.fullerton.edu, where you can also learn more about the narrators featured on this episode. We invite you to stop by, visit us at the Center for Oral and Public History, located at Pollock Library South, room 363 at Cal State Fullerton. Email us at coph at fullerton.edu, tweet us at coph underscore csuf, or find us on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Outspoken.